Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I'm delighted today to present another special episode of our podcast, in which you'll hear a recent conversation hosted by the Center for a New American Security on the package of economic sanctions implemented in response to Russia's attack on Ukraine. The United States and its allies have released an unprecedented and sweeping set of sanctions and export controls in response to Russia's invasion. This includes blocking sanctions on most major Russian banks, asset freezes on Russian elites, and a broad set of restrictions on exports of technology to Russia. Over the weekend, we saw the announcement of sanctions on Russia's central bank, along with removing select Russian banks from the SWIFT system and sanctions on Putin himself. To better understand and make sense of these latest developments, CNAS and external experts Eddie Fishman, Emily Kilcrease, Tom Keating, Alina Rybakova, and Richard Fontaine took part in a conversation on Wednesday, March 2nd. Here's their conversation. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this special CNAS event on the sanctions and export controls picture amid the Russia-Ukraine crisis. I'm Richard Fontaine, the CEO of the Center for New American Security, and um, please, everyone could join us this morning and our experts to talk about um, the issues that are uh, really being focused on the economic side of the battle that we see playing out on the streets of Kiev and other cities in Ukraine. We did a, uh, a session on this about two weeks ago, and the world has changed pretty dramatically since then. Um, Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine has elicited resistance, certainly among Ukrainians. It's inspired the world, um, but also triggered a set of geopolitical shifts that are really remarkable in their scale and in the rapidity with which they've taken effect. I think the world's not quite the same as it was two weeks ago or even a week ago. We don't know what the course of Putin's invasion will ultimately be or Russian policy, um, but it seems relatively clear that there'll be no full reversion to the global status quo ante. The post-Cold War era that began in 1991 may have just uh, ended this past weekend in some significant ways. That's true across several domains, but maybe none more so than in the economic sphere. Uh, just in the past days, we've seen unprecedented levels of allied unity and coordination and the imposition of the most far-reaching set of economic sanctions ever leveled against a major economy in the post-Cold War era. We'll unpack some of this as we go through the discussion, but just to name a few of these, there's been a total ban on trade and investment in Donetsk and Luhansk, sanctions on major Russian banks, including the two biggest, Spurbank and BTB, personal sanctions on President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov, which the Russians previously had said would cross a red line, as well as an expanding circle of Russian elites, sanctions on the Russian Central Bank, cutting certain Russian banks off from the SWIFT messaging system and sweeping new controls over the export of technology uh, to Russia. We'll talk about each of these measures uh, on their own merits, but the combination of them uh, means that we are seeing the Russian economy uh, subject to a coordinated uh, level of sanctions and uh, coercion that is unprecedented in the scale and uh, in the direction. Um, the measures are already having significant impacts, as we can see just by reading the headlines. The rubles down, um, energy majors, major Western companies, Apple, Dell, Ericsson are divesting from Russia or halting their shipments. Uh, Russia is restricting further flight from its capital markets, doubled its interest rate to 20%, the highest this century. Um, they may end up defaulting uh, on sovereign debt. And so while the immediate impact on the economy is clear, the political impact is unknown and we don't see uh, much sign so far that this economic uh, punch has impacted uh, President Putin's calculus. Um, and so the upshot is that we are likely headed to a drawn out war of economic attrition as allied sanctions take their bite and the technology export restrictions take hold and begin to erode Russia's ability to project power um, we saw even in the State of the Union last night some additional steps with 
the banning of Russia from U.S. airspace, um, the release of 30 million barrels of oil uh, from strategic reserve together with allies. Um, and so when you put all of this together, we're in certain terra incognita when it comes to the specific imposition of these level of sanctions with Russia, um, but also what the ultimate effect will be economically, politically, and in terms of the military um, situation in Ukraine. So to discuss all of these matters and unpack some of the specifics, we have uh, a great set uh, of experts with us this morning. Um, Edward Fishman is an adjunct fellow in the uh, Energy Economics and Security Program here at CNAS um, and previously served at the State Department and in other uh, positions. Um, Tom Keatonage is director of the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. Emily Kilcrease directs CNES's Energy Economics and Security Program, was previously at USTR and the Department of Commerce, among other things. And in uh, a little bit later on in this session, we'll be joined by Alina Rybakova. She's an adjunct fellow uh, at the uh, in the CNES Economics Program and also the Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute for International Finance. She'll be joining us from Europe in, uh, in just a few minutes. So let's... Um, Get, kick off the discussion here. As always, I will get the discussion going. And if folks tuning in have questions, please put them into the Q&A box and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. And Eddie, maybe we can start with you. Two weeks ago uh, in our CNES event, seems like a very long time ago, um, you noted that we could be away on our way to Iran-style sanctions if Russia invaded meaning maximal sanctions to try to cut off an entire country from the core functions of the global economy. Well, Russia did invade. Uh, how close are we are to what you uh, predicted might be in the offing? Thanks, Richard. And um, it does seem like quite a lot has uh, transpired um, since our last conversation. Um, I said um, from even you know well before this invasion happened that if Putin were to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that we would be on a conveyor belt to Iran-style sanctions. And conveyor belt, as we all know, only heads in one direction. The thing I wasn't sure about was the speed. I thought it could take months. Um, typically in the United States, um, the way things happen with sanctions is um, the executive branch sort of launches the first few salvos of sanctions. Um, and then Congress uh, you know, tries to criticize the executive branch and say they're not being tough enough. And then this Congress sort of escalates sanctions a little bit. And you kind of get in almost like a, a tit for tat between the administration and Congress until sanctions are, are at their maximal level. Um, that's kind of what I expected to happen with uh, the Russia sanctions uh, this time around. Um, what I didn't anticipate is just how rapidly um, the executive branch, the Biden administration in coordination with European allies, as well as other members of the G7 would escalate sanctions organically without congressional pressure. I think that's something that um, I didn't anticipate. Um, and I think the real reason that has happened is, um, is Europe, right? You look at European attitudes. Uh, uh, European attitudes have just had a sea change in the, the last uh, several days. You see hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in this, uh, European cities uh, demonstrating uh, in favor of Ukraine and against Putin's war of aggression. And I think what that has done politically, Richard, is it it has changed the chin window. You know, it's shifted the possibility, the political possibilities of sanctions, and measures that seemed really unthinkable just a week ago, like blocking the central bank of Russia from transactions, um, actually happened. You know, and and that I think the speed of of the escalation of sanctions has never um, has never happened before. Not in the case of Iran. Not in the case of North Korea. Um, I think the single most impactful sanction that the U.S. and Europe could levy at Russia is blocking. The central uh, central bank of Russia from uh, global transactions, and that has already happened. So, um, the the single most impactful sanction has been levied, um, but that doesn't mean that we have reached the top of the escalation ladder, right? Because even though individual sanctions actions matter, of course, and um, hopefully we can dive into some of them, when you actually view it from the perspective of economic pressure and from geopolitics and strategy the effects of every individual measure combine into a holistic feeling of pressure that the adversary must con con contend with, right? Um, and what we're seeing already now is because of the speed of this escalation, there is substantial effects of the sanctions that go well beyond even the targets themselves. One of the things that I found really interesting 
is um, Sparebank. So um, many have heard of Sparebank. It's the largest bank in Russia and has about 30% of the assets in Russia's banking sector. 60% of Russians are paid their wages through Sparebank. Um, for Americans in our audience, if you take if you thought about uh, what Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, and Capital One are to the average American combined, that's kind of what Sparebank is to the average Russian. Um, Sparebank um, was an early target of the U.S. sanctions last week. Um, it was not fully blocked, so it's not on the SDN list. It was um, a transaction ban was imposed on Sparebank. The European Union has not imposed any transaction ban on Sparebank at all. And even the U.S. transaction ban on Sparebank doesn't go into effect until late March. So currently, there's actually no prohibition on, on basic transactions with Sparebank. Nevertheless, on Monday, the ECB, the European Central Bank, came out and said that your, uh, Sparebank's European subsidiary was on the brink of failure. It's going to collapse, run out of money entirely. Um, what does that tell me? It tells me that the effects of these sanctions are rippling far beyond the specific targets. And that's because there's anticipation in the market that sanctions are only going to escalate. Um, something we can talk about a little bit later is the headroom. Um, so, uh, 10 days ago, before any of these sanctions were put into place, we were about um, at a scale of 10, probably a two out of 10 with Russia sanctions. Uh, that two was um, all uh, thanks to um, you know, folks who were working in the Obama administration in 2014 and 15, myself and others, who um, you know, designed the initial wave of sanctions against Russia. They haven't really changed much, frankly, in eight years. Um, I think within a few days, we've moved from that two out of 10 to about a seven or eight. Um, we're not at a 10. There's still quite a bit of delta between um, the sanctions in place on Russia today and those in place against Iran. Um, so we're not at the top of that escalation ladder, but certainly in terms of the types of actions that are both very impactful and that could be executed quickly, um, we've done a lot. Uh, I think the biggest thing that has been left out is um, oil. Obviously oil accounts for around 50% of Russia's oil uh, export revenues and almost a little bit less, but almost as much of their budget revenues. Uh, so it's, it's the big fish in Russia's economy and so far it's been exempted from sanctions. I do think that sanctions um, could and, and probably will eventually target Russia's oil exports as well, and I'm happy to get into that. But it's impossible to cut off all of Russia's oil exports overnight. So that would invariably be a bit of a longer term sanctions play to try to reduce Russia's oil exports over a period of, of months and potentially even years. Um, so Richard, to answer your question simply, we've gone from a two out of 10 to about a seven or eight out of 10. We're not at that 10 out of 10 Iran level yet, but. My analysis holds. I think unless there's a peaceful resolution of this conflict, which unfortunately seems very unlikely, I do think we're going to be sitting with um, Iran-level sanctions on Russia um, eventually. Great. Um, Tom, let me go to you, uh, maybe from uh, a view of the European and the UK picture. Um, again, it's, it's, it's amazing to imagine, even just a few days ago, uh, we were talking about how unlikely some of these sanctions would be out of Europe, given German energy dependence on Russia, given Swiss banking secrecy traditions and things like that. And yet um, here we are. And so how did Europe get to this point? And um, do you share the same uh, assessment of that Eddie uh, gave as to where we are and where things might go um, when applied to the European perspective? So thanks for thanks for having me. Um, the European Union, I think, has done a, a magnificent job. Uh, and why perhaps is that? Well, there's a war on the border of the European Union. Let's not forget there is a war on the border of the European Union. And that is going to focus uh, people's minds. It's absolutely for sure. Um, yeah, very early on when sanctions started to emerge, I think there were some uh, unfortunate statements uh, made by one or two uh, leaders within Europe. I think Mario Draghi wanted to see the, you know, the luxury Italian industry protected and so on. But other than you know some 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 unfortunate statements like that, the European Union has been has been united, um, and yeah, I think has surprised a lot of people. I have to say, I was not surprised when it came to the German decision on Nord Stream. At the end of the day, that pipeline was not servicing uh, the, the, the German energy needs. And so that seemed like a relatively easy gimme. And it also, but but it did also, I think, set up the German chancellor as, as somebody who perhaps was going to be the sort of person that the US and the UK would want to do business with on sanctions, if you like. He set out his stall, I think, very early and obviously has made that speech uh, about Germany's defense posture um, at, the, at the weekend. Um, <clears throat> 
what what I think is different between the the EU uh, and the UK is the UK was very strident about you know the consequences of massive economic uh, sanctions coming the way of Russia, and so I think as soon as that opportunity came up, and you know, I was critical about the first steps that the UK, the EU, and the US made when uh, Putin. Uh, recognize the independence of the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic. So putting that to one side, I guess I am less surprised than Eddie by how heavy the sanctions have come straight away. Because I think if you're going to promise massive economic consequences, then you need to deliver massive economic consequences immediately. I, I certainly wouldn't have been in favor of a, a kind of slow rolling conveyor belt. I want the high speed conveyor belt. Uh, and that, I think, is what we um, have started to see. And I would agree entirely that I think the, the sanctions on the central bank of, of Russia, the asset freeze is there. If we think about it, uh, building up uh, the fortifications of the central bank's uh, balance sheet over the last uh, five, six, seven years has been a, a key plank of defense for, uh, for Russia. And to essentially neuter that plank of defense uh, in one fell swoop, I think, is, is, is fantastic and um, certainly uh, uh, to, to be uh, to be um, uh, applauded. I think on the banking side, I mean, it's important to remember that, that and I say this as a, as a 20 year veteran of JP Morgan, banking is a confidence trick. And without confidence, um, banking does not function. And we saw that in the uh, global financial crisis uh, 10 or so years ago. So I'm really not surprised to, to hear that there are banks that are technically not touched by sanctions um, that are finding that they are struggling to uh, complete um, complete transactions. In, in, in all of this, I think there are kind of maybe two areas to explore a bit more. Yeah, one is energy. I mean, certainly, um, you know, Europe has a problem with Russian energy and sanctions on Russian energy, I think, are going to be clearly an area of very uh, close discussion between, between allies. The other, and it's a topic which is particularly um, to the fore in the UK, is the whole question of oligarch sanctions, broadly defined. I use oligarch as shorthand for kind of those that are close to Putin, whether they are um, the kind of the well-known names that own uh, big companies or or, um, or sports clubs, or whether they are you know, members of the National Security Council uh, and, and others who sit around Putin. I think that's an area where at the moment, um, generally the, the the allies have have been weak i think it's you know targeting people's assets individually is proving legally more more difficult the eu has 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 moved reasonably uh, swiftly so i think that's to to be welcomed the uk is still lagging uh, and struggling with i think trying to get its legal authorities aligned with the targets that it that it wants to hit but you know i i you know, a week ago i was critical about the slow pace and the weak pace of the start now i would um, you know, like 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 Eddie, I I would give a ten out of ten, and I would agree we're probably at something like seven or or, or eight out of ten, in brackets, um, with uh, with energy really being the issue that I think we're going to have to get to grips with. Great. Well, we'll get to energy uh, maybe in, in a few minutes, but Tom, if I can just follow up with you on one thing. So, uh, what do you make of the UK, which of course is emerged as an autonomous sanctioning authority? Um, especially post post Brexit, but coordinated with with Europe and um, and also the the talk about cleaning up the dirty money problem in the city and and Russian real estate in London and and all of these other things that at least are presumed to really hit in a way that some of these other uh, measures may not. Yeah, so I think it's important not to assume that issuing sanctions is going to solve the systemic problem that the UK has with illicit finance. And clearly a number of the people who will be subject to sanction either already are or for sure they're coming down the road um, you know, are people who have dirty money in, uh, in, in London. Um, but that doesn't mean that, the, that that doesn't strengthen the defences of the UK. And I think this is where at the moment you've got this kind of interesting kind of two track process going on in the UK. The current government has repeatedly postponed legislation that would strengthen the UK's defences against um, uh, against illicit finance. So, for example, reforms to our company's house uh, and, and one or two other things that are that are needed. Um, the, the the war in Ukraine has basically made maintaining that position untenable. Uh, and so the government has very quickly had to scramble to make space in the legislative calendar to bring forward legislation which is long kind of overdue. So you've got on the one hand this sort of domestic debate about strengthening the UK's defences against illicit finance. And on the other hand, 
uh, you've got the focus um, on going after with sanctions the assets of oligarchs and other individuals who have for a quarter century uh, enjoyed the welcome uh, of the of the UK. Great. Um, Alina Rybakova has joined us from Berlin. So uh, welcome, uh, Alina. I introduced you at the top and, and let folks know that you'd be joining us a little bit late. Um, I'll give you a chance to take a deep breath and ask Emily a question. Then maybe I can go to you on um, on some of the SWIFT and, uh, and, and maybe some of the central bank issues. But Emily, one of the things that has gotten, I guess, a little bit less attention than the financial sanctions is the export controls. Um, and yet those are really sweeping, um, both in the scope and in their potential impact. So can you maybe just walk us through what has been done here and what you expect the impacts to be? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, like a lot of the other measures we're talking about, um, you know, with the export controls and how U.S. and allies control the flow of sensitive technology outside their borders, there's been more transformational change in how we do that in the last week than there has been in decades. Um, and that's that's not really an overstatement uh, when you consider uh, how much has has changed. But just to unpack a little bit exactly what happened um, last week, um, you kind of need to understand a little bit about how export controls work in the first instance. Um, and so what we're talking about, what was subject to the new controls is what we call like this dual use technology. So it's mostly commercial technology, but there's something about the technical characteristics of that tech that means it can have a military application. Purely military goods, like your tanks, your missiles, your bombs, that has always been subject to a high level of control to Russia. So that's not what changed last week. What changed was things like chips or airplane engines or other sorts of goods that um, have both the commercial and the military application. And historically, you know, the United States has worked with its allies to kind of define these uh, technologies on various lists. And then each country kind of goes its own way in terms of actually regulating the flow and setting different levels of restrictions of specific technology to specific locations. Um, what happened uh, last week was they kind of did away with that uh, country by country kind of discriminating approach and just applied controls on everything, uh, which is a little bit of an overstatement, but there's kind of three sets of, of rules that were imposed last week um, that were done in tight coordination with the allies. So the first set is a set of economy-wide rules. So basically this applies to any uh, dual use technology that's going from the United States to Russia. Um, and what they did was they took any technology that had been put on any of these lists uh, previously and said it's now subject to a license requirement and that license will be denied. So you're talking about stuff like junky airplane engines that we previously only controlled for you know, exports to North Korea. That's now on this list. It's subject to a policy of denial. So that's pretty big and impressive across like the class of technologies that we're talking about. Those economy-wide rules do not apply to broad consumer goods, doesn't apply to food and medicine. And they had tried to carve out uh, things like iPhones. They did carve out things like iPhones. Obviously, we can talk about kind of spillover effects with Apple's announcement last night that it was going to stop shipments. Um, but the intent was to try to allow some of those personal communication devices into Russia because we want Russians to have access to information. On top of the economy-wide rules, they also um, put 49 Russian entities on a military end-user list. This is the complete prohibition on any sort of technology or goods or items from the United States going to these 49 listed entities. Um, and that's a big deal. Like you literally cannot sell a pencil uh, to any of these 49 listed entities. Um, so that's a pretty uh, harsh restriction. And then the last piece of, of what they did, and this is really interesting and unprecedented, was they used what's called the foreign direct product rule to extend the application of both the economy-wide rules and the military end use rules outside of US borders. Um, so it's capturing all these sorts of goods. If there's any kind of nexus back to US technology, if there's any technology, software, tools, et cetera, that are used to make an entirely foreign good, it's now captured uh, through the application of the foreign direct product rule. Um, it's able to apply the US laws outside uh, of US jurisdiction. Some people know this from the Huawei context. This is the Huawei rule on like a huge dose of steroids. It is way bigger and broader than we've ever done it before. The last point I'll make on this, and this is interesting when we think about the allied coordination, um, is that we've actually uh, exempted uh, allied countries from this last piece of rules, the extraterritorial rules, 
if they're applying the same level of controls in their own jurisdiction. This makes a lot of sense. We do not need to apply U.S. law uh, to goods coming out of the U.K. if the U.K. is applying the same level of controls to technology coming out of its jurisdiction. Um, so there's a lot of details in terms of what's going to uh, be in all of these allied rules. A lot of them are still waiting to, to see them being rolled out. Um, but that's actually a really important development because it means not only are we, you know, avoiding a scenario where we're, you know, making our allies mad by applying our laws in their jurisdiction, we're actually going three steps further and getting them on board with enforcing these rules uh, with pretty much all producer nations at this point. Um, so this is all a very, very big deal. It's very complicated. We'll have a paper out later this week that explains all of this in more detail. Um, but the export controls are, are are significant. And if you fast forward to when these really start to take effect and you factor in both what is being restricted, but also over compliance, for lack of a better term, and, and companies that say, well, maybe I could sell this chip by the, the plain language of the restrictions, but I'm not going to for variety of reasons, including reputational ones. What are the, what are the sort of uh, sectoral effects that you think these things are likely to have over time? Yeah, I mean, clearly they're targeted at sectors that are important for Russia's ability to project power. So this hits telecommunications, it hits uh, maritime, aviation, um, high tech to a certain extent. Um, and you're right, it will it will take effect over the course of the next six months, a year, three years. It's essentially freezing those technology stocks in place where you're not going to be able to, if a technology is subject to these restrictions, you're not going to be able to replace technology as it gets old and degrade. You can't make upgrades, that sort of thing. One interesting piece that I think we'll, we'll want to watch is in the chip sector, where even a lot of chips that we would consider advanced um, because they uh, enable high-tech applications might not be on some of these control lists because it doesn't have a specific military application. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we try to extend these rules even further to try to capture some of those more purely commercial chips um, that could still be uh, important, for example, for Russia's AI sector. Great. Um, Alina, let me go to you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us uh, from Berlin, where I think you've uh, probably landed just a few minutes ago. So it's good to have you. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about SWIFT? It was this um, rather astonishing popular cry to you know, kick Russia off SWIFT, not just from Americans and Europeans, but from the Ukrainians themselves. That was done, at least in a partial way. Um, what do we expect from that. And um, there were arguments about, well, it doesn't really make that much difference given the all, all the other restrictions that have been announced. Other people said, no, it makes a big difference. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, how consequential that move is and, and what you expect to be the result of it. Thank you. Um, indeed, there was chanting in front of the White House, disconnect from SWIFT. You know, I've never seen a demonstration like yeah. that. <laughs> so um, I think people were looking, especially uh, as Emily and, and uh, Eddie and Tom were saying before, uh, we have gone many years forward in terms of our response with uh, sanctions that we didn't even think was uh, possible, were considered to be nuclear options just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so SWIFT uh, is at par to me uh, to adding to SDN list Russian banks or even the central bank uh, action as well. So to me, SWIFT now sits together with the other th two nuclear options, and they're working together. And I think that's what's having such a massive impact. Uh, SWIFT by itself is also significant. Some of the banks are not disconnected, you know, that people would like to see on that, on that list. <clears throat> so that gives an opportunity for Russian authorities to work by other banks and still continue transacting. But I think it's a strong signal. It's also a way to test the system to see what degree of overcompliance we'll see there. Um, and then there's also room to continue tightening the controls. I was also, as an economist, not in favor at all of doing a full blanket swell disconnect and then trying to work out the carve-outs. We know how that in Iran was European alternatives. It, does, it doesn't really work. So it's almost easier to do certain sort of banks and then keep on tightening that. So I think SWIFT is important, but it's also particularly important in conjunction with other measures that they have taken. Uh, across the world. And what is the sort of practical for those who um, neither uh, protested in favor of a swift cutoff nor do this, uh, the, the mechanics of this for a living, what is the sort of practical upshot of swift and the other uh, uh, restrictions that you mentioned? So if you're a business trying to uh, finance something in, in Russia or if you're an individual 
trying to move money in or buy something overseas. What are the kind of practical? I can give you a perfect practical example. I had a beautiful Soviet poster coming to my peace related poster, actually coming to Washington, D.C. And I no longer can bring it in because um, the people I'm I'm sort of uh, I'm paying, uh, it's complicated because they're not sure if their bank has is correspondent account with a bank that is disconnected from SWIFT and therefore Mm -hmm. no foreign bank will take them as a correspondent bank on SWIFT. So we need to go through those motions and we haven't completed the process yet. And this is a poster. Uh, Imagine what's happening with big transactions at the moment. So for practical applications, it's a messaging system. In theory, it doesn't settle. If that would be an alternative for blockchain, some sort of alternative magically appearing, there are some small firms with unclear regulation around it that would be able to communicate the sort of messages. That's fine. But uh, given how connected, you know, global payments, uh, transactions are to settlement, but not settlement, sorry, to the messaging exchange via SWIFT, um, no bank will touch it because the risk of um, uh, <clears throat> uh, being on the wrong side of sanctions is just too high. So it's much better, easier to step back, do no transactions, see what happens, um, and then move forward if you have to, or maybe just keep on sort of scaling back and, and disconnecting from all Russian banks. And are there alternatives available to uh banks that no longer have access to SWIFT. I mean, there's a, I guess there's a Chinese nascent messaging system. You could telex or fax or, you know, I mean, get on the phone and describe the transaction. I mean, is that, is that what these banks will be left with in terms of uh, sending messages to report the uh, transactions? Well, we need to look globally. There are some alternatives, but they're still very small and regulation around them uh, is unclear. And I know that CNIS also has the digital initiative uh, going. And I think that is very important because uh, the blo- there are new blockchain technologies and there was criticism around SWIFT in terms of cybersecurity, even before the concerns about sanctions. And then potentially these new technologies will be sort of even faster and, and, and easier to, to, uh, to exchange information complying with this global standards on the messaging systems. I think some of the banks have also started developing those uh, uh, information sort of exchanges um, as well, but they're just too small. We don't even have the statistics of what percentage of transactions going through it. It could be less than 1%. So it's not a viable alternative. Uh, Russia and China have their national payment system that in theory could connect. And there is, I think, one bank connected to the Russian payment system. And then I think there are sort of uh, maybe half a dozen dozen banks or maybe even load single, uh, <clears throat> maybe 12 banks connected, Russian banks connected to the Chinese system. And using this settlement system, then they can also use it for the information exchange and settlement. Uh, we had announcements about uh, connecting those, I think 2019 in the press, Chinese press, Russian press, but we haven't seen any transaction go through that. And as of date, to date, we do not know if any transactions are taking place. And, and clearly China, by just having one bank connected to Russian system, didn't seem to be too, too interested in. Emily, let me go to you on this uh, crypto question that um, Alina just raised, because, you know, there, there's a few uh, articles and comments out there about crypto as an alternative to get out from Russia, to get out from under some of the financial sanctions. Although, um, you know, if, if a transaction is illegal, it's illegal whether you spend, you know, clamshells or 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 crypto or rubles or whatever right um but but maybe there there's the ability for some leakage um via crypto uh you know is that can that be used to get around a swift cutoff or to get around some of the other financial sanctions that have been put in place the answer is yes a little bit but you need to keep in mind the scale of what we're talking about here i mean we do know including from, from some of our prior cnas research like clearly um some bad actors we've seen north korea do this they're definitely using crypto exchanges to try to launder money um, but they're not doing so at the scale of the assets that are being frozen right now um, and so when you think about i mean keep in mind these are transactions that are you know recorded on a blockchain where it's visible and so even if they're using unhosted wallets even if they're pushing stuff through mixers even and if you, you 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 can track this activity, and if you start trying to push this massive amount um, of assets through these exchanges, even if you're trying to use some of these obfuscation techniques, the scale of it's going to be huge. It's going to take a long time to do. So there's going to so yes, there will be some leakage for sure. Um, but like I would not characterize this as a way to really uh, conduct a massive sanctions evasion uh, effort. 
I would also note that this is clearly something that Treasury will be looking at. We saw last year that they, for the first time ever, uh, sanctioned a crypto exchange. It was a Russian crypto exchange. Um, so we know that the enforcers will be on the lookout uh, for any attempts to evade. But again, like I think the scale question is, is really critical here. And we'll be doing at CMES some work on the national security implications of cryptocurrency, more generally speaking. So for those who are interested, watch this space. There will be um, more to come. Um, Eddie, let me go to you on um, the energy side of things. There's a question from Ernie in the audience about why oil, gas, coal, and other energy products are excluded from the sanctions list. Um, there may be an obvious answer to that. So let, let me just extend the question a little bit. And, um, you know, they're given the the Europe's reliance on Russian energy, there have been these carve-outs, and yet we've seen BP and Shell and Total, you know, pulling out of their stakes anyway. Um, so I guess one question is, do you expect sanctions in the energy sector? And then irrespective of what the answer to that question is, what do you think the trajectory will be, given the fact that in the absence of sanctions in the energy sector, we're seeing uh, foreign companies pull out anyway. Up, oh, you're muted. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, to, to, I'll answer Ernie's question first, and then I appreciate the, the follow-ups because I, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had. So, why has energy been exempted? Um, I think the answer is is pretty straightforward, which is that um, the United States and Europe um, have determined that um, it is not worth trying to hit Russian energy. Um, in a first wave of sanctions for fear of raising oil prices around the world. Um, this obviously has, is, has been construed as primarily driven by concerns for the domestic economy in the United States, which I think is true, but it's not the full picture, right? Because um, yes, it's true that um, you know uh, if Russian oil uh, exports, which are about 5 million barrels a day, were to go down dramatically, prices would rise. It would definitely affect prices at the pump here in the United States. It could worsen inflation. It wouldn't be good for our domestic economy. But there's also a, an actual geopolitical or geostrategic reason as well, um, which is if you were to, say, cut Russia's oil exports by 20 percent uh, in terms of vo by volume per day, but the subsequent spike in oil prices was 50 percent, it's possible that Russia could perversely earn more money selling less oil on global markets. So in, in a way, the sanctions actually could help Russia. So I want to I want to be clear that it's not just driven by some domestic economic or domestic political calculus. It's also driven by a, a calculus of how to actually maximize pain on the Russian economy. In terms of what's next for oil and gas sanctions, I think it's really important to separate between um, future production of oil and sort of the oil sector as a part of the Russian economy and as from current sales of oil and gas. I think they're very, very different. And the types of sanctions you would apply would be different. In terms of the oil and gas sector, um, I actually think they are not, they're, they're, not only are they not off limits, but they've actually already been targeted by sanctions pretty substantially. So um, back in my day in 2014, um, one of the most, um, probably the most uh, impactful sanctions actions we took were debt and equity restrictions on Rosneft, you know, which was you know, as Russia's oil giant, that's what actually, um, you know, puts pretty substantial strain on Russia's oil sector, as well as really sweeping prohibitions on the export of goods, services, um, technologies, investment to Arctic offshore deep water and shale production in Russia. And this was sort of seen as Russia's next wave of energy production. Those were the sanctions that, um, if you may remember, forced Exxon out of the Russian Arctic. There was this very um, highly touted joint venture between Exxon and Rosneft. Um, it's actually the first time that I encountered Rex Tillerson. Uh, for uh, you know, when he was the CEO of Exxon before he came to the State Department, um, and and that that's um, that forced Exxon out of Russia. It was a big deal at the time, right? So oil and gas have never been off the table, and even this time around, something that kind of was like um, completely below the radar, but to me actually deserves a lot more attention, is that last week in the initial, the sort of second uh, uh, sanctions announcement by the Biden administration that included full blocking sanctions on VTB. There were debt and equity restrictions across all of the commanding heights of Russia's economy, including on Gazprom itself. Um, I want to stress that, that Gazprom, the, Russia's gas giant, was targeted with debt and equity restrictions last week. That was something that we had we could never have gotten through in 2014, 15, or 16. And I was in negotiations with the European Commission, the G7, 
pretty much every week back then. And we would have never been able to get those debt net equity restrictions on Gazprom. So I want to say oil and gas ha um, have been targeted, certainly in terms of their future prospects. And I think that type of targeting, Richard, is why you're seeing um, companies like BP and Shell exit Russia, because the writing is on the wall. There will be no more um, room really for Western companies to participate in exploration and production in the Russian oil or gas sector moving forward. Um, so I think that that is the writing's on the wall there. The real question, the one that's an open question is sales. Will sanctions hit oil and gas sales? Gas sales, I would be very, very surprised given that um, it is important uh, uh, source of revenue for Russia, but it's not that important. I think it's like 6% of uh, export revenues compared with you know, 45, 50% for oil. So oil is really the big cash cow of Russia's economy, not gas. But gas is incredibly important to Europe, right? So this is one of the few areas of economic statecraft in which there's kind of parity between the importance to Russia and the importance to Europe, right? Oil, on the other hand, I think will be targeted. Oil sales, I do believe, will be targeted by sanctions. Um, you heard it here first. I know people don't believe it, but I'm, you know, we'll come back and have this conversation in a few months and we'll see if I'm right. Um, the way that we did this against Iran was pretty creative and, and honestly was driven by congressional legislation. Uh, what we did was we basically set it up so that sanctions were imposed on buyers of Iranian oil, but were waived if you were to decrease your purchases of Iranian oil in the preceding six-month period. So it basically was a gradual um, wind down of oil purchases from Iran. I do suspect we will see a regime like that um, put in place against Russia, and I think it will be it will come from congressional legislation. Um, that's my 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 best uh, forecast for the coming months. Tom, maybe you can um, give a sense of how the Europeans are thinking about the energy question. And there's also um, there's a question from Christina about the scope for further escalation of sanctions by the West. You know, if if you and Eddie largely agree that we're at if Iran is 10 out of 10 and we're at sort of 7 out of 10, is that remaining 7 through 10, is that in the energy sector or are there other areas in which you would expect, should there be further escalation on economic coercion, uh, us to see measures taken? Yeah, um, I think the first thing, I just wanted to come back on a point that's sort of running through a bit through what we're talking about, which is that at the moment, um, uh, banks and companies are probably urge, uh, ver veering on the side of, of, of caution. Nobody wants to discover after the fact that they processed the transaction that they shouldn't have done. It's also mm -hmm. worth bearing in mind that certainly in the US, you know, it is illegal to facilitate sanctions evasion. Uh, and so we've, we've seen uh, banks suffer considerably at the hands of, of legislation uh, as a result of that in the, in, in the past. Um, I'll come to the energy in a second, but I think the, the other thing which we, we need to focus on, and, and this is where I think in Europe particularly uh, we're not good, in, in the UK a little bit better, but nothing like as good as the United States, and that is focusing on ensuring that there is implementation. At the moment, in a way, implementation is happening because people are shocked by what's happening in, um, in, in Ukraine, uh, and the, the system has kind of been struck by a, by a form of stasis. Um, what we need to make sure is that there is genuine implementation and there are plenty of countries in Europe and there are plenty of banks in Europe that do not have a good track record uh, of, shall we say, um, uh, complying with uh, sanctions against, uh, against Russia. So I think if I look forward, one of the big issues that we're going to have to get our heads around once we've maybe moved the needle from seven to eight to nine to ten, um, is going to be ensuring that we're actually implementing these sanctions. We're not just relying on the sort of the the, the stun that, that that is in the, the system um, at the moment. Look on energy. Um, uh, I, to some degree, I think I think weather is going to play a role in this, right? So it's currently early March. Um, you do hear from uh, people in the European Commission and uh, and elsewhere in in Brussels. Uh, they kind of talking a little bit about about well, you know, as demand begins to to tail off, as we kind of come towards the the the, the better weather of, of the summer, will that provide an opportunity for kind of recalibrating the way we think about uh, about energy? So let's let's uh, let let's see. I mean, I think it, it, important. To, to bear in mind here that coordination and collaboration has been spectacular for the last 10 days. And that is something that I think 
um, in Washington, in Brussels and in London, they will want to maintain. It's important to note the damage that seems to have already been done to the Russian economy or is being put in place to be done to the Russian economy by just moving the dial to seven. So I think there'll be a, a lot of um, close thought given to what do we, at what point do we need to go to eight to nine to 10? And let's say that going from nine to 10 is when we start talking about European energy. Is that really necessary soon? Or is that something that can be be kept back? Because, because ultimately, we're going to want to have a conversation about off ramps. And maybe we'll come to that in a second. But at some point, we're going to want to, you know, find a way of giving something um, to, to to the Kremlin uh, in order to, to reverse some of the sanctions that have been, been been put in place. So I think as we go down this 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 conveyor belt, Eddie's conveyor belt from seven to eight to nine to ten, I think that the decision will become more complex. Um, but for the time being, even at seven, we're causing you know, massive damage. Yeah, I definitely want to get onto the, the off ramps and end game uh, kind of question here in just a minute. Um, before I do, though, Alina, um, one of the things that again, just in the in in the Past week or so, one heard more of before the imposition of these sanctions was the um, question of systemic risk to the global economy, uh, given the size of the Russian economy and how many of these steps had never been taken before against an economy so well connected with everyone else. Um, so one was a question of systemic risk, and the other was a was the uh, the question of Russian retaliation or countermeasures, um, and you know whatever hesitations were attached to those that have quickly been moved through to get us where we are. But what do you think is still within scope in terms of systemic risk, if there's a Russian debt default or, or any of these other um, questions with, uh, with, you know, countries coming out of COVID induced recessions and trying to regather their growth and so forth. Thank you. So I think Russia's uh, strategy of isolation after the 2014 sanctions also meant that there is uh, sort of insulation. It also meant isolation from the global markets. So Russia's default, you know, I know there is a lot of excitement on the market of people involved in Russia, whether it's default or not. And I think we're going to go direction of default. Uh, but it's almost insignificant because the debt is just too, too small to, to matter for global financial markets. So it's uh, it's about 60 billion maybe outstanding that is held by foreign investors. Probably there have been outflows in the last week. So that is not a, something that is, will be very meaningful for the global financial markets. That said, you know, the plumbing of financial markets can be very. Oh, Elena, you have frozen it. Maybe the plumbing of uh, technology is also uh, an issue. So um, I, I really want to hear the rest of your answer. So, yeah. so am I back? I think okay, I'm you're back. back. You're back now. I'm we back. You know, exactly. Sorry about it. Exactly. But just like that, you know, the plumbing of the financial markets, because Russia still had uh, 640 billion in reserves and they might have been active in some either swap markets or some fixed income markets, you know, similarly for Russian banks. Uh, so um, that's why, you know, we don't want to call it too soon saying, oh, the spillovers will be very mild. We're hopeful that they're mild, but there can be unintended consequences and we've been watching the markets very closely seems the markets are taking it in a very calmly in a stride you know we have uh, sort of had some early mon monday concerns but then it subsided the market is trading well globally um and then finally indeed elevated commodity prices uh for oil uh, agricultural products and i think something that's very relevant to the discussion at cnas also the geopolitical implications for countries that are particularly exposed and many countries in mean are exposed to ukrainian exports for example and we already have some news that say in Indonesia, maybe the, the prices are going up. Egypt, uh, Lebanon is already having issues uh, as is. So I think that's another sort of unintended consequences that would, could go that direction. And <clears throat> just on Russia's reaction, I think it's very interesting to see how we are all come together here and there is physical war, defense and military action on one side. And on the other side, there is war via sanctions. And this sort of it's truly multidisciplinary approach. You know, we can no longer separate our little fields into different spaces. It's national security that it sort of encompasses our economic statecraft, but it's a small part of a bigger picture. So I'm curious at what side Russia will also say this is war. What is happening to us right now, it is akin to war. It's just being wedged via sanctions, by other means, um, uh, rather than physical means. And I think when they sort of move in that direction, they say there is no, there's a point of no return, and we'll talk about off-ramps. They might start doing measures um, on their front that will be a bit more forceful. 
That said, again, exposure of foreign companies to Russia is not that high. I think it's unlikely they will be going after gas supply because it's just so important for them as well. Uh, so even if they turn a bit more forceful on the economic front, I think the, the spillover still still should be manageable. So if the if the Russians say this is war, it's being waged through economic means, but it's nevertheless extremely destructive to our interests. And by the way, it's being waged by actors that are different than the ones that are conducting the military war. So therefore, we're going to retaliate against those who are imposing these restrictions. Is it what are the sort of economic uh, tools available for them to respond? Or should we should we expect a response, a response to some other domain, a cyber attack or or, you know, one of the many other things that would be available to them outside the, the economic sphere? I think in the economic sphere, the only viable response they have is via commodity prices. And I think they will have to be cautious. And just like Europe and to a less extent, probably I mean, in the U.S. have all gone through the analysis of their strategic dependencies with Russia in critical sectors, whether it's palladium or other commodities or fertilizers. I think Russia potentially is doing the same to see which, you know, something that does. Uh, you've. Frozen again, Alina, and um, we're going to come back to you when the plumbing of the tech uh, world matches the plumbing of the financial uh, institutions. Sorry um, about that. Oh, no, you know, you're, you're, you're back. You want to complete your answer and then. Uh, and yes. Then so I think so. Russia has limited options on trade. I think it's tried to can to be uh, can try to be very st strategic there, um, but it will li likely have very limited impact. It can probably uh, freeze assets of foreign companies operating in Russia. I think that's a very likely scenario um, uh, that we're moving next. Very tight uh, capital controls. We already hear about uh, com companies not being able to divest. I think that's what's happening next. Again, we'll have impact on individual companies, but probably not systemic. And they probably have to go to other spheres. As you mentioned, Richard, it will have to be cyber. It might have to be more physical uh, defense mechanisms. It has to go probably outside the direct economic sphere because their measures in economic sphere are just too small. Yeah. Um, Emily, uh, a question to you before I, maybe I bring everybody in on the sort of theory of the case and the end game and the off ramps and all of this. Um, and this, so Michael has this question about China. You know, China hasn't signed on to sanctions, the export controls, uh, which looks like a giant enforcement hole. Um, so can you speak to um, China's role? Um, well, I, I would say, one, what is China going to be forced to do, um, even though it may not wish to enlist in a sanctions regime of any sort? And then on the export control side in particular, you know, to what degree can China sort of fill the hole that is left by those who are restricting um, exports to Russia? Yeah, I'll take that second one first. I mean, there's this question about backfill uh, that China is able to do on the tech side. Um, and whether they have the motivation to do it. Um, for certain products, sure, but I think kind of the impressive uh, part of what that happened under the export controls is once you get all major producer nations saying that these products can't go, um, then all of a sudden you're putting China in the position of having to violate not just US law, but uh, laws of most of the Western and many Asian allies as well. Um, so that puts them in a pretty difficult position Will they want to do it anyways? Will there be some leakage? Absolutely. But I think as soon as we start to see that, um, you will start to see things like, uh, for example, entity list designations for any Chinese company who is uh, believed to be uh, shipping products illegally, uh, keeping in mind that because of all this extraterritorial application of these laws, um, you know, those products, even if they're made in China, could be subject to the U.S. laws and restrictions. So if a Chinese company is violating that law, I would fully expect to see enforcement actions. The other piece that we haven't really talked about yet is this idea of secondary sanctions, which is, again, like this extraterritorial reach of our sanctions authority so that if there's China-Russia transactions that are happening and the Russian entity is sanctioned, if we apply the secondary sanctions, that allows us to reach the Chinese entity as well. And so it really is this question about how China is balancing their geopolitical sympathies with Russia um, with the fact that they are very much more uh, intertangled with the global economy. There are some really serious repercussions for them, uh, for their particular companies um, that could be in the crosshairs of some of these economic measures um, if we do find uh, evidence that they are helping actively evade these sanctions. All right, let's talk about, um, you know, end games and, and sort of where this goes over the longer haul here. 
And I think that probably starts with what the underlying theory of the case is. What is the actual motivation for the sanctions in the first place? Um, which, at least to me, seems a little bit all over the place right now. I mean, certainly before the invasion, there was the thought that the threat of sanctions might lead Putin to do less uh, than he would do in the absence of the threat of sanctions. That deterrence didn't work. But, you know, one conceivable reason to impose such economic harm on the Russian economy would be for Putin to say, well, this is costlier than I thought it would be. I'm going to not invade further or something, although there seems to be very few people who think that that's a realistic um, expectation. Uh, another would be punitive. They just deserve it. You know, they've done something bad and, and so they deserve to be harmed um, for what they've done, irrespective of what behavior that may or may not change in the future. You know, another is to weaken the Russians over the long haul. Well, we can't alter their will or their behavior, but we can reduce their capability to project power by impoverishing the country and making it less able to uh, employ the kind of things necessary for to check power. And then I guess, the, you know, the last one would be, well, we may not deter Putin, but the next would be aggressor who sees the price Putin is paying now may be less inclined to pay such a high price himself or herself. Um, but it, it would seem to me that those sort of point in potentially different ways in terms of the application of what one would actually want to do and therefore influences, um, you know, the conditionality of the sanctions, which in the statements, most of the statements don't say if you get out of Ukraine, the sanctions go away or you get back on SWIFT. It just says you've done this. We're imposing costs and we're going to do this. and We'll impose more. So as a matter of policy, a sanctions policy, Eddie, maybe I can start with you and you know, one, what do you think is is the, the right set of underlying uh, motives for the sanctions that are being put in place? And then two, what is it? The, what is the behavior that that we're trying to modify over the long run? And how do we do that in terms of conditionality or off ramps? Sure. You know, this is obviously a really important question. Um, I actually just uh, have an essay out in Foreign Affairs that covers this uh, that came out on Monday. So if anyone wants to dive deeper, we recommend that. But um, I, I think you really have to break it down into near-term and long-term goals, right? Um, in the near term, I think there is um, there is an intention from these sanctions to try to pull Putin back from the brink, right? Um, the only reason that that's even a possible goal of sanctions right now is because the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people have put up much stiffer resistance, I think, than anyone expected. I think that's critical, right? Because if this had been some sort of blitzkrieg victory in which, you know, uh, right now uh, Putin had succeeded in overthrowing the Ukrainian government and, you know, Russian troops were in control of Kyiv, we wouldn't even be talking about that as a viable goal of sanctions. But I think because Ukrainian people have sort of staved off the Russian military and bought some time I do think that these sort of um, almost shock and awe sanctions, which really is what they are, you know, the, the Central Bank of Russia sanctions, I'm sorry, there's not even the people involved who are my friends thought that we would be there, right, as quickly as we did, right? So um, this is an unprecedented escalation of sanctions and the consequences are, we're pushing Russia into a financial crisis that's probably gonna be more significant than the financial crisis they faced in the 90s. And this is just after a week of sanctions, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. So I do think that it's potentially viable. You know, when I say potentially, is it 50%? No, significantly lower, probably in the 5 to 20% range, that sanctions could play a role in persuading Putin, coupled with the resistance he's facing on the ground, to find some way out that leaves Zelensky in power in Ukraine and effectively leaves Ukraine's borders intact. And of course, you know, there will be billions and billions of dollars of devastation in Ukraine infrastructure that will need to be rebuilt. And countless lives that, you know, cannot be brought back. But I do think that's a viable goal of sort of these near-term shock and awe sanctions. However, I do think there is a long-term goal, which is an, what's what I call economic and technological attrition. So we normally think of sanctions as a tool of behavior change. I think that it should be very clear to all of us right now um, that so long as Putin is in power in Moscow, the United States and Europe have effectively zero interest in enabling Russia to benefit from the global economy and use those benefits to fund its military machine. So I think there's a very long-term strategic goal of, of, frankly, just degrading Russia's ability to do harm. So it's less about behavior change and more about 
um, really just taking the tools away from Putin to the extent possible that he's been using to inflict such harm upon the Ukrainian people. Tom, I saw you nodding. Is that how it seems to you? And, and to the degree to which you are fluent in the sort of European thinking around this, which is changing so fast, is that uh, sort of near term? Well, we may not be able to change the behavior, but if there's ever a time to try, it's now. And then longer term, um, which would to, which would be to say unconditionally and indefinitely, I suppose, that we would try to diminish the Russian economy indefinitely. Yeah, I, I have. I mean, if you're again, I started off this session by saying you've got to remember there is a war on the border of the European Union, yeah. and the, the 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 Russian military cloud has been hanging over a lot of European member states for a very long time, uh, and so. The, the kind of the, the long term goal must surely be to ensure that that cloud no longer exists. Now, you know, Putin would say, well, I feel there's a cloud over military cloud over me because of the way in which uh, NATO um, has has advanced. So that, that there may be some space there for, uh, for 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 negotiation. I think I would I would agree entirely with Eddie. I think there is a short and a, and a long term mission. Um, and we've seen what damage we've successfully done in the short term with some relatively simple tools. So, you know, if 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 Putin were to meet certain criteria, we would unfree central bank assets. I mean, that would be a significant fillip to him. The only last thing I would say is that that we in the West have a history of promising economic benefit to people when sanctions get lifted and that economic benefit not not materializing. So I think we need to make sure we learn the lessons of, for example, the Iran situation uh, and think very carefully about what we promise, because the one person who will hold a grudge if he doesn't get what he has promised is Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so I think we need to be careful uh, in, in, in any negotiation we have around uh, the, the future uh, of, of sanctions in this situation. Alina, maybe you can comment, but I also interested in uh, you spoke before about a very practical you know, transaction that you were unable to undertake that the you know, millions of Russians, I would assume, are quickly learning that a new day is dawned for them in terms of their everyday economic life. And this is highly speculative. But when those start to turn over into potential, you know, popular grievances that have political effects, then again, we may be in a in a new uh, kind of ball game here. So um, is it right to think that for average Russians, you know, a new day is, is truly here and is not going away anytime soon in terms of the daily life? I think the last weekend succeeded in inventing time travel. Everybody traveled to the 90s, but uh, unfortunately the direction of travel and Russians, uh, all these Europeans, Nostrogatsky brothers in, in sci-fi, and the direction of travel is the opposite. Uh, in the, so in the 90s, there was a devastating crisis, but there was an incredible sense of hope. Maybe some failed promises from the West and also we economists maybe failed in some way because we didn't know how to integrate it successfully. It was the failed privatization that produced the oligarchy and the, all the problems related to that. But still, there was massive crisis but there was hope. Here it's a massive crisis and there is no hope because you're traveling backwards. Uh, and I think that's where everybody woke up on uh, after the weekend uh, and they understand that. A lot of people who are educated people understand that. Unfortunately, uh, some supposedly according to the domestic FTIOM uh, uh, surveys, there are still about 60 people who support this. Of course, if somebody were to walk up to me on the street in Russia, probably will say either nothing or support. Uh, but And it's a, sort of a Kremlin-affiliated poster. But still, there are still a lot of people who don't fully understand why this is happening to them and of course if we get stalled in the situation when neither side is capable of de-escalating it's important to still stay in touch with hearts and minds of uh, common russian people um, i know that nuance is lost it is war and uh, we're hitting them with very hard sanctions uh, we cannot do surgical in interventions anymore uh, but we still need to have keep that line with common russian people uh, who are struggling who are suffering who many of them did protest for many years um, that they do not feel that they're being lumped together with, uh, with, the, with the regime. Mm. Um, Emily, let me finish with you. And um, if you have thoughts on the end game, but also you may want to mention a couple of the things that are forthcoming CNES-wise in terms of the paper that you mentioned uh, as an explainer and um, some of the work on crypto and things like that. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the end game, clearly this is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and, you know, we can talk about off ramps for some of the specific sanctions measures, but there's also this bigger question of, you know, and this isn't something we solve today or think about today because there's more immediate issues. But, you know, what does Russia's engagement in the global economic order look like after all of this? Do they come back from the brink or are they in the he headed in the direction of Iran or North Korea where they're just completely isolated or they're complete, completely isolated in the company of China, North Korea, Iran, et cetera. Like that's not a club that I would want to be in, um, but that's certainly uh, a viable uh, option uh, based on what we see from them to date. Um, yes, this will be an area of a lot of work uh, for all of us unpacking the events of the last weekend. It's like 10 years worth of research agenda right there. Um, we will have uh, an explainer coming out on export controls. Uh, we'll be doing another event on the cyber um, and crypto uh, issues in the coming weeks. Um, and then I think as, as, as events continue to unfold, we will continue to be pumping out analysis, whether quick stuff on Twitter or papers and the like, just trying to make sure people have good data on this, that they're putting this stuff in the right context. Um, so we will all be pretty unbusy unpacking this very long weekend. Great. And I mean, in a way, it, it's strange for us to be talking about end games while I think the war in Ukraine is intensifying as we speak and is likely to only get more brutal and destructive. And it is pretty, frankly, damn hard to see the unwinding of coercive economic tools as long as Vladimir Putin, who you know invaded Georgia in 2008 and stole Crimea and then invaded the Donbass and then you know barrel bombed uh, Syrians uh, ad nauseum there and now has uh, invaded his neighbor uh, in order to try to topple the government and replace it with a puppet. Um, even if all of this somehow ends sooner than we help, uh, hoped and with less human destruction than we fear, it's pretty hard uh, in any, even in the long run to envision everyone saying, well, okay, a new day has dawned and, you know, behavior is different because there is no trust left after the deception and the um, aggressive behavior, unprovoked aggressive behavior that the Putin regime has enacted. So um, we got a long way to go, it seems to me. But um, thank you all. Uh, Alina, thank you for, for dialing in uh, from the other side of the ocean. Um, Emily, thank you. And, uh, and our other two panelists had to, to jump as well. But um, thank you to all them. And thanks for everybody for joining us. And we will be doing more of these kinds of things uh, soon. And so we will see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.